As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. For the Nationals, the young guys, Robles and Soto, hitting first and fifth. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Racing Presidents Podcast. This is our post-Christmas edition. I hope everyone had a great holiday, however you celebrate and continue your traditions, and hope everyone in your family was happy and healthy. Tim Shovers alongside Todd Dibus. Ryan Wormley is going to be an addition coming out of the bullpen today. Todd, before we get into uh, the show today, just uh, did you have a good Christmas? Yeah, it was great. We had a visit from the in-laws. I think this is like when you make the rounds. You have to decide what you're doing on Thanksgiving, and then you have to decide a month later how you are handling whatever holiday is your holiday of preference and divide the family time accordingly. So we got to stay home and eat a lot of food and have a little alcohol and not do a whole heck of a lot. So it was a pretty good combination for us. Oh, nice. Well, I, ju- I moved over the weekend. Oh, and congratulations. I've, thank you. I've been able to enjoy being a new homeowner and relaxing, and I got a little more space than I'm accustomed to. So that's been the, the front of my home. The pay for that is the move. Correct. Was your move hellacious or tolerable? Uh, we hired movers. Okay. Have you ever hired movers before? It's kind of strange. The only time I hired someone to move, like, almost all of my stuff was when I moved from Seattle to here, to Washington, D.C., because I was not – and I drove from yeah. Seattle here, and I didn't want to, you know, haul all my stuff. So I had to load it in a truck where they let you load, and then they put up a divider – and then they let someone else load, and then they progressively dropped it off across the country. So it wasn't just like a straight-up, hey, here's one mover, has a truck, has my stuff gotcha. situation. Well, I – let's just say this. Of anything I've ever spent money on before where I didn't have to spend money, because theoretically I could have moved myself. Sure. It was the best money I've ever spent. <laughs> Not only just the convenience and the ease of it, but it was fun watching the movers. They're so efficient. Right. It's yes. like it's unbelievable how they wrap the couch and take it out. So that was that was part of the fun. So it's behind me. Glad I did it. And uh and, and here we are today. Well, here's what we're gonna do on today's show is talking with a great idea. Now that the Bryce Harper free agency continues to drag on and drag on, and the reality of him not being a national in two thousand nineteen is getting more and more real based on some other moves and chatter and all that. We're going to go through what the lineup is going to look like if Harper isn't on the Nationals. So it would be the first time since 2011 that that would be the case when he was in the minor leagues. And Todd, why don't you start us off? Let's just go starting around the diamond, starting a catcher. 
Give us the position players, and we'll set the table from there. Who are our eight everyday starters if Harper's not part of it? Yeah, I think you see Jan Gomes, predominantly a catcher, Anthony Rendon at third, Trey Turner at short. For now, the Defoe Kendrick situation at second, Ryan Zimmerman predominantly, assuming he's healthy, mm-hmm. um, and it's not spring training. Yes. He'll be in the field at first base. Juan Soto in left, Robles in center, and Adam Eaton in right would be my initial guess here. Where are we? December 26th. Now, is it locked and loaded that if it's Robles and Eaton, that Robles gets the center field not over Eaton? I don't know that it's locked and loaded, but I think that's the most likely situation. I think they just like Robles' closing speed and giving him the extra space. And also, it just feels better to me in, the, in that way, I, and which is not... I can't stand when I say something feels right versus like... Especially a sport that lives through right, numbers. Yeah. Right, yeah. But, you know, that's where he has been. That's where he was when, he, you know, he was up previously. They would pop him in the center. So I think he would be better off free to roam versus trying to figure out corners and angles and all those things as he goes through new parks all the time. He's going to have a lot of adjustment as it is. So you mentioned the question marks at first base with Zimmerman based upon injury history. Obviously, Matt Adams is the backup there. Right. So so that's easy enough. Who's the fourth outfielder? Yeah, it's Michael A. Taylor for okay. sure to me. And, and the way Davey Martinez talked about Taylor, not just last year, but when we were talking to him in Las Vegas and when I talked to him on the side in Las Vegas – is he is just super, super high on Michael A. Taylor to the point where I was like, are there going to be, is there going to be an erosion of plate appearances for Robles or someone else because he wants to get Michael A. Taylor in there? But also that verbally is counter to what he did in reality last year when he just cut off Michael A. Taylor, essentially. He had a, Michael A. Taylor was able to play a lot because Adam Eaton, Played a lot early and then was hurt again. And then Michael A. Taylor was in. He didn't play well. Then he did play well. And the month that he played well was basically his last month of any legitimacy. Um, And they just chopped his time down from there. So I'm trying to figure out how those two things go together. Davey Martinez being so high on Michael A. Taylor, but also cutting him off last year when he was playing well. He survived. They survived the the slow part, and then when the good part came, then they just chopped them. Do you think part of why they're building up Michael A. Taylor is that, because Michael A. Taylor is a pretty good fourth outfielder. Yes. So he's more of a luxury than the usual spot there. Do you think they're kind of playing up for maybe a team who's starting right fielder, tweaks an ankle in spring training, now all of a sudden needs a new outfielder, and, and they're kind of building up his trade value? It's possible. A, Davey Martinez is never going to talk down someone in general terms. B, that always makes sense to publicly talk up someone, right, to some to some degree yeah. to send out that vibe. Instead of the, this guy continues to strike out way too much and we keep telling him to stop striking out and he continues to strike out, that's not going to do much for you or for him or for his trade value. And uh, and Ryan Wormley sits down to join us as we go through what the Nats lineup's going to look like without Harper. Also, Suzuki is the backup catcher, which sure. is a very good backup catcher. Yes. As we talked about earlier in the week, he was really the best catcher for the Braves last year on the way to the winner division. And you assume he's going to be paired with Anibal Sanchez from the start, and you know they're going to try to get him somewhere in the in the low threes to mid threes, probably at bats-wise, and not beat on Gomes too much. In the past, Weeders probably played too much the past two seasons when he was able to play, and the result of that wasn't great. And Kendrick would be also on days he doesn't start. Let's say Rendon gets a day off. Kendrick can step in and play third base. So 
We have Gomes and Suzuki behind the plate. Gomes is the main guy. Zimmerman at first with Adams behind him. The Defoe, Kendricks, Platoon at second. Trey Turner at short. Anthony Rendon at third. If it is a Harperless outfield in Washington, you have Adam Eaton in right, according to Todd Dibas, he thinks. Victor Robles in center field. Juan Soto in left field with Michael A. Taylor as the fourth outfielder. So let's kind of set a mock lineup, if you will. And Todd, we'll start with you, and then we'll get to Ryan right after that. Kind of go through it. Start the lineup. You're, you're Davey Martinez, penciling it in. Who's the leadoff hitter? Well, two things about this. One, it's difficult, especially now. Two, this, as you mentioned at the top, was kind of my idea to discuss this. And I already regret it because all season long on Twitter, all I write is, I don't write this. <laughs> don't, stop yelling at me. I have no responsibility for where these people are being placed. And I'm uh, this happens every time you post a lineup card? <laughs> Essentially, yeah. sure. I, I To the point where I've been like, I don't even think I want to post this anymore. I don't want to post this piece of information just to hear the blowback. Yelling at me as if I was like, you know what, today Bryce is going to hit leadoff. Or, you know, today someone's not going to be hitting second. What was the most common? The first what was the most common comment to you, especially as the season wore on and the team was not performing very well. What was the most common comment to you when you would post a lineup card? Well, certainly when Harper was moved to lead off, that had become discussed in public in general terms uh, earlier as an idea, even back in spring training. And I didn't think it fit him. I understand the rationale, the more at bats and, and that, and all that, that makes sense, of course, but him personally, I didn't think it fit him and he was miserable performance wise in that spot, but he did it because he was asked. So I think it was that. And what's interesting is actually one of the sit-downs I had with Davey Martinez, I said to him, usually most of the complaining is around the lineup, especially for a new manager. But for you, it's been about bullpen usage. I haven't heard as much about the lineup as, we, as we've gone through the season here. So I'll try to send us back on track of initially this is something I sent to someone who had asked me this Previously, I sent Eaton, Turner, Soto, Rendon, Zimmerman, Gomes, Robles. This is opening day, Max Scherzer, and then Defoe hitting ninth. Soto, Rendon, you could go Turner, Soto, Rendon, and flip Eaton back down toward the bottom of the lineup if you wanted to. I think Davey Martinez really likes the on-base percentage there, and I think this is kind of a dusty thing that he— David Martinez came around to the, well, you know what, let's have two fleet guys at the top as opposed to maybe someone lumbering hitting second because we saw Stanton and how good he was when they had him hit second in Miami. So that idea kind of came in vogue, but I still think that he prefers the speed, especially the way he's been describing how they want to be on offense and overall this coming season more of a, you know, just the ball's in play and we're moving and we're more athletic and things are happening and we're more versatile. To me, that would seem to indicate that he would want the two-speed guys at the top. But I would be intrigued by Trey Turner as the leadoff hitter and Soto second and Rendon third and some variation there. And I don't feel great when I look at this, Robles ends up hitting seventh and I don't really like that. So again, what's your three, your initial three, four, five was what again? Initial three, four, five is Soto, Rendon, Ryan Zimmerman. Okay, so you got Rendon hitting cleanup. We bring in Ryan Wormley here. Ryan, first off, did you have a good Christmas? Any traditions that you followed through on? Uh, so for the first year in my entire life, we actually did not do a Christmas on the morning of the 25th. My sister it lives in Atlanta now, so she's coming up on Friday. So I actually haven't opened any presents yet. I haven't done any Christmas stuff at all. We do cinnamon rolls on the in the morning after we open all of our presents, so I'm very much looking forward to that on Friday. But 
Uh, I come in uh, Christmas clean so far this season. All right. Well, then we get that out of the way. We get. Uh, we <laughs> well next time we'll hear about your cinnamon rolls. Uh, you heard us begin this conversation of what it looks like without Harper. Give me sort of a mock lineup in your opinion if you were Davey Martinez. Yeah, so there's obviously a lot of factors at play here. One of the interesting things is, as Todd mentioned, Victor Robles. I, I mean, you saw last year with Juan Soto, some guys just come in and just have it right away. And obviously Robles showed a lot of those uh, abilities last season. So you don't want to bring him too far down in the lineup, but you also don't want to say, hey, this is a 21-year-old kid who we're just going to put him at number two or four or wherever you have right off the bat. Another interesting question is Juan Soto seems to be, I mean, the guy hit, got on base four out of every 10 times uh, as a 19-year-old. Is that the type of person that you want at the top of the lineup? He's not classically speedy, but you also like having the guys who get on base very you know, often. But some guys aren't as comfortable at leading off. Some guys just feel better when they're hitting fifth or second or wherever. So there's obviously a lot of factors at play that we can't really know. One of the other problems with the Nats lineup is there's not that obvious cleanup guy. There's a lot of guys who would seem to fit the bill of a number two hitter, and it's a very, that makes for a very deep lineup, which is going to be beneficial throughout the long haul of the season, but it doesn't make for a very obvious uh, spot. So I'll just start off here. I am going to put uh, Juan Soto uh, at leading off. I just love the fact that he gets on base so often. I know that that's unorthodox, and I'm not here to just say all the orthodox stuff. I'm here to, to try and mix it up. Um, I, I would put Juan Soto leading off, and then I would put Adam Eaton second. Uh, he is number two on on-base percentage of, of the 2018 season, obviously, um, in fewer games. So right off the bat, um, th- those are the two that I, I just feel most comfortable, the guys that are going to get on base. I'm going to emphasize that a lot. Uh, I'm not as interested in the speed. I'm not as interested in the power. I just want guys that are going to get on. And then number three, to me, this is the very easy one, is Anthony Rendon. Um, I know Todd had him at four, but that's I have Turner further down, but Rendon is, is the clearly the most well-rounded guy on the team. Um, for me, that's an easy one, two, three. And at four, I, I'm not 100% sure. I, I sort of came into this booth not entirely sure who I was going to pick. In the moment, I'm actually going to stay unorthodox and put Turner here as sort of a resetting the lineup midway through and having sort of a secondary leadoff guy. I know some teams would like to have the secondary leadoff guy down at nine. I know that Dave Martinez obviously comes from the Cubs organization where Joe Madden has done that a lot. I'm going to reset the lineup in the middle here and put Trey Turner. And then from there, I am a big believer in Robles. I think that top prospects are more ready than they ever have been in baseball history. So I'm at least starting off happy to put him there. And then really from the rest of it, it isn't as as critical. I think the top is, is where we're focusing most of our attention. But then I, I would get uh, Zimmerman. And then are we are we going Defoe or Kendrick at second? I would go Kendrick. I've, I'm a huge believer in Kendrick, uh, assuming he's obviously fully healthy. And then uh, Suzuki, Gomes, whichever catcher you have. And then I, I will put the pitcher ninth. But uh, I know that that is, is very much not what we would normally expect. But I think Major League Baseball is sort of too set in its ways with lineups. And A, it's not as important as fans make it out to be. But B, I think you can be more creative with it than managers often are. So, again, I realize this is a very strange order to put but that's what i'm throwing out there as my first suggestion you're the youngest person on this podcast so i know that you would be the most new age of any of us but that's a really you have some really radical new age (laughs) thoughts there right with having soto batting leadoff and turner in the four spot because that is the exact opposite of how i would have it i would put trey turner in the leadoff spot i like my best base dealer as my leadoff guy want him on base creating havoc for the battery turner is well now with the future of Billy Hamilton, a little bit in doubt. Now he's on Cincinnati. Turner might be the best base dealer in baseball now. Is that a fair statement? 
if Michael A. Taylor never plays, then yeah. sure. So right now, and I'm, this is the least confident I have of any spot in the lineup, I, w- I would have Eaton in the second spot, have a lefty come right after it. And then I like Rendon. I like my best hitter hitting third. I like my best hitter hitting in the first inning. I guess that came from Ken Griffey Jr. Baseball, which I played in Super Nintendo growing up, and Ken Griffey always hit third for Seattle, and that was, maybe that really impressed upon me. I like Soto in the four spot. I think he can handle it. I think he's got the power. I think he's got the uh, ability to get on base. Uh, and then I like Zimmerman in the fifth. I like a guy who can hit a home run anytime up to bat in that fifth spot. Six and seven, I could really flip, but I got Gomes six, Robles seventh. Give me some speed uh, for the seventh guy. And I put Defoe slash Kendrick at eight, Scherzer at nine. But I know that sometimes, obviously, Davey can go with the pitcher in the eight spot. Yeah, if it's Defoe, he prefers Defoe to be ninth, and he'll flip the pitcher in front of him. I do want to point out what's very interesting here is that it's December 26th, and Ryan has neither opened a Christmas present and he has Juan <laughs> Soto hitting leadoff. These are very notable abnormalities happening to, here. To be in clear, I, don't, I wouldn't say I expect this to happen. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not my prediction. It's more of a what I would do. Like I said, I, I, I want to mix things up. I, I think you can be more creative than managers often are. And I think the biggest strength of the Nationals lineup isn't in – it's not top-heavy. It's it's so deep, and I think that allows you to mix things up. And, and it's certainly I don't think it's going to be the same lineup every day. We're sure. going to see different Absolutely. iterations. And really, any of those top four or five guys, I'm very comfortable with in basically any of those spots. If Soto is hitting fourth or second or third, I, I'm fine with that. In it. I, I actually I, – let me backtrack that. I wouldn't be fine with him hitting fourth. I just think – a guy that gets on base, I mean, his, his on-base percentage as a 19-year-old was 406. That's outrageous. I want him getting as many at-bats as possible. So I want him in the top three in some spot. But beyond that, I really don't think there's a wrong order at the top of the lineup because you just have so many guys that are capable upper part of the order guys. Yeah, and that that's the part I struggle with most. Like initially, without considering everything else in my head, I was like Soto 2, Rendon 3, and then and then frame it out from there I almost really don't care that much what happens after that because you could put Eaton in front of them and say we have decent on base here we could put Turner in front of them and say we have really good speed and 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 some pop here and then the bottom half of the lineup you can manage it as you want if you want you know if you want to combine the speed with Robles and Defoe but or if you have Kendrick obviously you have a different style of hitter there than Defoe I feel like to fall asleep Howie Kendrick counts opposite field line drives you know if he's laying in bed instead of like counting sheep he's just like opposite field line drive opposite (laughs) field line drive because he's been doing that for so long and it will be interesting to see what he's like in spring training because he he and everybody keeps claiming that he is directly unscheduled to be 100 percent and completely fine and when I talked to him during the season last year a couple months out from his injury he said you know there's no reason for me to rush because I can't make it back this year so we're taking all the time that we need now when I'm rehabbing during the season, and then we have the whole off season, And even by the start of the new year, he'll be in a really good spot. And then when the middle of February comes and he has to show up in West Palm Beach, he anticipates he'll be fine. Uh, I'd also like to remind everyone when Daniel Murphy came rolling through on crutches at Winterfest last year, we were told that he was going to be ready for opening day. And Everyone kind of scratched your head at that. That didn't seem like it was going to happen. And, of course, obviously it did not. I know that asking about the pitcher hitting in the eight spot is like kind of asking someone about the Internet in like 2005. Like we've already kind of covered this. But 
I still want to bring it back up. Like Todd, where are you on putting your pitcher in the eight spot as opposed to nine? Because I, I understand the arguments for it and the second leadoff hitter and all that, but I want my, I know Scherzer's an unusual good, usually good hitter for a pitcher, That's but where I was going to start. I want my worst hitter hitting the fewest amount of times in the order. And it kind of ends there for me. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think that's fair. I think, Scherzer is obviously a different guy. Like, if it was Gio Gonzalez, then yes. Let's never, ever, ever hit him eighth. Let's try to hit him tenth. You know, Um, you just never want to see him at the plate. And and one thing they were really poor at as a group last year was bunting the pitchers. And this has come up even in the – they were so bad, it's been talked about in the offseason by the coaching staff. You know, when we chatted with them at Winterfest, it's like that's something we need to get better at. It's like, wow, you got to be really bad at that if you're thinking about it in December (laughs) that, you know, we just weren't good enough with our pitchers when it came to bunting. I will say this. I don't understand why other pitchers don't do what Max Scherzer does, and that is go into the batting cage as part of your in-between start routine. Make time to do that and go down there. You have to hit. You know this. It's part of your job. Yes. Go in there and get better at it. You're, You're... are you ever going to be good, good at it? No. But, you know, this idea that pitchers aren't – that they don't spend time on it bugs me. It's like you have plenty of time to do all your pitching stuff and go down in the cage one day in between starts, which is exactly what Max does. And then, obviously, the day of the game, he takes batting practice too and and does other things. So do this. Everybody should do this. This should not be an anomaly. Go down. It's. I think it's about – 10 steps down from the clubhouse to the batting cage. It's not far. Take those steps, bang a left, get some time in the cage, and uh, practice this. Scherzer practices against specific pitches in the cage because depending on who he's going to face the next time. So if a guy throws cutters all the time, he wants to see cutters all the time in the cage. I feel like we make a big deal out of this, and partly we should because of the kind of rarity of it. But then again, we should not be making a big deal out of this at all because there's so much common sense installed in what he's doing. Major League Baseball teams are constantly looking for any small advantage they can get over their competitors. This seems like such an easy one. It's like when fans recommend, oh, you should pay the minor leaguers a better living wage or give them better living conditions or food. It's it's just small, tiny competitive advantages that don't take a lot of resource investment. There doesn't take a lot of time and energy, and it can make you – that much better, and Scherzer doesn't right. have. He's not a doesn't have to be a, a, a you know silver slugger, but he just is that much better than the competition, and that helps in the long run. And he is a silver slugger. Well, yeah, I, I <laughs> that was the wrong phrasing, but yes, no, 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 I was I was amplifying your yes, your point there. I appreciate it, and, uh, I, and I'd even add that the Nationals have Joe Dillon. They have an assistant hitting coach make the pitchers BP a Joe Dillon thing, so that you don't have to pull away from Kevin Long. You have someone who's very smart you know, as an assistant hitting coach, deploy him for this specific group and make everybody better at it. I did want to mention, uh, because we sort of got off topic on the pitcher hitting eighth, but I, to me, part of that calculation isn't just, I mean, yes, if it's Scherzer versus a guy like Gio, that's that's very, two different. Let's just pretend it's Gio every day. But I think it matters if it's who you have leading off, because if you have a guy like Turner, that sort of, again, already fills the classically speedy leadoff hitter but if you have a guy like Soto who has a lot of pop as well then I am more a fan of the 
quote-unquote second leadoff hitter in the ninth spot instead of the pitcher, just so you might have somebody get on base for a guy like Soto or, or really anybody up there. So uh, I, I think that whoever is leading off their style of hitting and what their strengths are, that would also help change my decision of where the pitcher's hitting. So, Ryan, what would you think about Robles ninth if you had Soto as leadoff? Based on that logic. I don't hate the idea. The, the biggest problem with that is I just don't know yet what Robles is. Sure. Uh, so it's, it's harder to, to judge that. Um, we know he's fast. Yes. I, we I, got that part. I, if I, you're not having, I had him, I think, fifth in my lineup, mm-hmm. which is, is aggressive. If you're not doing that, if you're instead going to keep him in the bottom third of the order, I'm very, very fine. And in fact, in favor of would have him in the ninth spot. I, I like that a lot if he's not going to be one of your guys in the top of the order. Todd, you just, as we close out this topic here, you said something that made me chuckle because you said Victor Robles, we know he's fast. Mm-hmm. I feel like you know how every NFL announcer when Ryan Fitzpatrick would play, it had to be mentioned that he was a Harvard quarterback. Yes. Ryan Fitzpatrick. Let's not forget he was a great quarterback for Harvard. I feel like every time Victor Robles gets mentioned, you have to throw in that he's fast. Yes. It's part. It's become part of his name. It's like a, it's a secondary last name. All right, any more meat on this bone with the lineup? Todd's going to be writing about this all winter long on uh, NBCSportsWashington.com. <laughs> As will Ryan. Ryan also yeah. a baseball scribe. I can yeah, don't tweet me. <laughs> Couldn't be happier that Mike Elias is going to be the next general manager of the Baltimore Orioles. I'm very pleased to announce Brandon Hyde as, as our 20th manager in franchise history. All right, well, before we uh, wrap up here, I want to go over the latest with the Orioles and just their new brass, just something to touch on. And Ryan, familiar with this. The Orioles have had a big makeover, and I feel like there hasn't been a ton of light shined upon it because things were so bad last year. But, Brian, can you give us an update on the new brass at Camden Yards? Yeah, so I assume that you are talking about Richie Martin, the number one pick in the Rule 5 draft. That's the big addition they made this winter. Obviously, Yeah, everyone was hyped in Las Vegas <laughs> for the Rule 5 draft. Well, that's because the Rule 5 draft means it's over and they get to go home. Right. Yeah, I thought Michael Elias was a slam dunk, grand slam hire, whatever cliche you want to throw out there. I thought... He was terrific. Obviously, he comes over as the former assistant GM with the Astros. He's uh, played a role with the Cardinals. Young guy, but who came up as a scout, so he sort of toes the line between analytics and you know in-person scouting. I think he toes that line really well, actually. And he is a uh, he, he led up Houston's international scouting efforts, which has notoriously been a problem for the Orioles, and really not even a problem, just something they've avoided entirely. So this is a very clear message that they're sending to the league that they are getting back into that game. They were in the mix for Victor Victor Mesa and Victor Mesa Jr. That obviously didn't come to fruition, but they're clearly trying to get back into that water. So I really like Elias, and I really like Brandon Hyde. He's the guy came over from the Cubs, was their bench coach. Um, he also spent some time in player development with the Marlins. I think that he's a perfect fit as well, and the thing I liked about him is He's young enough uh, and still seems like an up-and-comer that he could be around long-term. A lot of the pondering about the Orioles' manager was it's probably going to be a stopgap guy, and the guy that you have at the start of the rebuild is not going to be the guy that's there at the end of the rebuild. I think Hyde, I mean, we, we don't know what's going to happen. He's managed one game in his career, but he could be a guy that's there long-term and, and is still you know at the helm when they get into contention again. Buck Showalter and Dan Duquette were often at friction, uh, according to reports, and they maybe disagreed on how to use analytics and how to best build a lineup and, and a lot of the little things. And they were both decent at their jobs, but they weren't on the same page all the time. And it seems obvious from now, I mean, it's just been a couple of press conferences that Michael Elias and Brandon Hyde are on the same page. All of that said, 
the most important part of this entire offseason for the Orioles is ownership. Peter Angelos is not as active as he once was. His sons, John and Lou, um, they were the ones at the press conference introducing Mike Elias. They seem to be more, A, transparent than their father was, and B, more interested in just letting the baseball guys do their thing, which has been a complaint in Baltimore for decades that uh, Peter Angelos would come in and nix a trade that would bring back a couple prospects. He would say no. And his reasoning might have been fine. I mean, he would say things like, I don't want to rebuild because the season ticket holders are, are paying me to see a winner. But sometimes you have to take the long-term view. And most of Birdland seems very willing to take the long-term view right now. And his sons seem to as well. So that's it's just nice that everybody seems to be thinking the same thing. There's no artificial timelines put on here. There's no, we need to be competing by 2020. It's, hey, if this thing isn't ready until 2022, 2023, we just want to build an elite talent pipeline into the major league roster and go from there. And I think they have the guys that are equipped to do that best. So it's going to be a couple slow off seasons for Orioles fans, a couple tough seasons to get through. Last season was 47 wins. That is not fun, um, to put it mildly, but I definitely think they're in the right direction. And a lot of the other scouts and general managers in the league said things like, oh, this puts the AL East on notice. This is this is going to be a team that is contending for the future, even in a division with the Yankees and Red Sox. So that's very exciting for Orioles fans. There is just so much ground to make up there, right? They have to yeah. get rid of some bad, they have to finally get out of some bad contracts then they have to make sure they're right with their draft picks and, as you mentioned, be effective internationally. And then you're looking up at the Yankees and Red Sox, and it just has to be an enormously daunting view when, you, when you're looking at all this at once. Like, where do you think they even start? Where do you prioritize the start in that situation? I guess would be my first question when you look around and say, all right, here's the payroll over here, and oh, yeah, they're the world champions – and then there's the payroll over there. These guys lost. How did these guys lose? And then, you know, you're down there with 40-something wins, and you're just like, we got to nail these draft picks. And in the way in Houston, they had, like, one draft that was super bountiful, but they also blew it with a couple high-end picks, you know, two in particular. Mark that, Apple? Yeah, and, um, and one that never signed with them um, and, and went elsewhere. Brady Aiken. Yeah. yeah. So – and they got a couple right, but they also blew it a couple times, but they were still able to kind of pull it all together. So it, just to backtrack to Seattle real quick, Seattle went through a situation where they had a bunch of high draft picks, and you thought, and they took Dustin Ackley second overall, and everybody said, there's no way this guy is not going to be a good Major League Baseball player. You know, it wasn't a reach at all. He turned out not to be a good Major League Baseball player. He couldn't hit it at this level. And then they took Danny Holson, who you might remember from Virginia, and he mm-hmm. – blew up his arm multiple times and that didn't work and they you know Mike Zunino became a catcher who <laughs> stayed around and is a very good defensive catcher you know but not what they thought he was going to be ever at the plate had a bunch of problems at the plate and you know and then another guy who didn't work out another guy so we've seen a situation where there was a front office turnover there you had a bunch of picks and it didn't work and then we see a Houston where they they stripped everything down they had a bunch of picks and even though they blew it a couple of times they're able to pull it out so there's not a guarantee lock in the Orioles situation of, well, for a few years, you're going to have really high-end picks. You're going to have some money to spend. You're going to be able to reset. There's no assurance that it's going to work. You still have to make it happen. Well, and it's, it's not like 2009, 2010, when you had Strasburg and Harper at the top right. of the draft. It's Adley Rushman seems to be the guy that most prospect evaluators have as like the top tier of players this year's catcher out of Oregon State. But 
he's not a Bryce Harper level talent. So Elias has said he, he pointed out that they made some mistakes in Houston at the top of the draft. He hopes to have learned from that experience. But even, you know, when Aiken didn't sign, they got the number two pick the next year because of it. Alex Bregman, who right. is a star. So it's a numbers game. It's just about as getting many chances as you have to try and get elite talent. And I do trust that they will evaluate talent well, but obviously it's, it's not perfect. And evaluating talent well is hopefully you hit on two out of four, and that's considered sure, that's terrific. That's a huge number, yeah. All right, well, and again, the 47 wins you mentioned, half the season they had Manny Machado. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's how bad things were in Birdland last year. As we close it up here, I just want to say that I recently, about a couple weeks ago, watched, rewatched Moneyball. First time I'd watched it in a while. Have, you, have either of you seen it in, in a long time? I, it's been a long time. I probably remember the book, reading the book more distinctly than seeing I the movie. I have not seen it since it was in theaters. And when I saw it in theaters, I will never forget a dad and his kid, which is very nice. They were in the theater, but they were sitting right next to me. And the kid kept talking at full volume the entire time, asking his dad questions. And it took me out of the movie, drove me nuts. But it was a good movie. <laughs> so the movie came out, I believe it was 2011, somewhere around there. And so the money ball thinking had fully permeated to baseball, but it still like hadn't trickled down to the fans as much, I would say. And when you watch the movie now and you, you know, if you remember the scenes where the old scouts are kind of going through their old way of evaluating. OK, here's who we want. Jason's little brother, Jeremy. Oh, Billy, that's trouble. Uh, Billy, look, if, if I, yeah, Billy, if I may, uh, he certainly has had his problems off the field, and we know that what he can't do on the field. And, uh, he's getting a little thicker on the waist, yeah. You know, and his reports about him on the weeds and the strip clubs. Well, his on-base percentage is all we're looking at now. And Jeremy gets on base an awful lot for a guy who only costs 285000 And Jonah Hill and Brad Pitt are, are fighting back on it. Like, those dinosaurs seem like even bigger dinosaurs now. I mean, it just shows you how Moneyball has has further trickled on and things that we now accept as commonplace in the sport just 10 years ago was not even the case. How dramatic the revolution has been. I mean, the Oakland A's this year started a reliever in their in their wild card game, but you hear the way that that like they push back on some of the new points that Brad Pitt has to say and the way the league is coming back on it and it's just Man, that that movie seems it it has aged really, really well. And I I think all baseball fans should watch it. And it shows that where we were 20 years ago and how far the game has changed. I think part of an interesting scene in there was one of the pushbacks was don't open your presents on Christmas Day, wait, and then possibly hit Juan Soto leadoff. And if you combine those two <laughs> things, you're really going to be a revolutionary. It's the future of baseball, guys. <laughs> Don't forget the cinnamon rolls uh, yeah. uh, as well, Todd. But anyways, I, I really think you guys should uh, should rewatch it. It was fun to see. And uh, it was Jonah Hill's first serious role. So he, he does a ton of those now. But it was funny. to Superbad was on yesterday, so I don't want to talk about Jonah Hill being serious. <laughs> Let's talk about Superbad-style Jonah Hill. I do love that movie. Very fun memory when I saw that in theaters. All right, well, that's going to close it up for us on the Racing Presidents podcast. Hope you, everyone has a great weekend. After the New Year's, we're going to have another edition. We'll see, unless, of course, breaking news occurs uh, over the weekend. Have a great day, everyone.